0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My next guest is Peter Layton, and we will be discussing his book, Grand Strategy, that was published in 2017. Peter Layton is a visiting fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University in Australia. Peter Layton, welcome to the New Books Network. It's great to be here. Now, uh, we usually like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and
2: uh, what's the exciting backstory behind working on this book? Well, the reason for the book starts um, about sort of, sort of 10, about, uh, 10, 12 years ago, I was teaching grand strategy at the National Defense University. In fact, at, at, at the Eisenhower School there at uh, Fort McNair. And when I started, it was interesting that there was no real, if you like, single book about grand strategy. What we did was... We, we did, I don't know, was 38 seminars or something, um, and we went through a historical um, example of, of, of a grand strategy in in each seminar. So the students were expected, if you like, to develop their idea about grand strategy from history and and to process all of that information by themselves. And they were students d- doing uh, doing a master's course. So it was quite different to that sort of scientific idea of standing on the shoulder of giants and, if you like, building off other people's work this was doing this was this was being your own giant and, and processing everything yourself and I thought uh, not completely convinced about not completely convinced about this so that gave an idea that that uh to 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 have a think about um about teaching grand strategy for policymakers because the students were uh, military and civilian um at, at, at that at that colonel uh, uh, level, so they were going back back to the Pentagon and the Department of State and the Department of Energy and the department and all sorts of places to do to do grand strategy. Except each of them would in fact do it in a different way because they had because they worked. So of course, they got their own ideas worked out. So I, so that's I what I, I so the idea was that, that 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 I would draw upon you know the many hundreds of books, the many the, the tens of thousands of, of, of the people years that have gone into thinking about uh about about grand strategy and try and have a synthesis here and bring all the stuff into a simple form for policy makers now bear in mind those kind of jobs and, I, and i've done those jobs my, my myself are not sort of one of those nice academic jobs where you sit back and have a year or so just to sort of think about things everything happens fast your boss walks in and you're looking at a blank sheet of paper and he says i'd like a grand strategy on the following um, and and oh by the way can i have that after lunch thanks um so policymakers tend to be stressed they tend to be busy and they tend to have a thousand things happening at once so my idea was to was to if you like make it simple not make it complex but not make it complex but make it simplified rather than then 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 overly simple and uh, miss and miss nuance and you have to bear in mind there's a famous rule of threes that human beings can think about three things at once but no more um, and, after, and if you start thinking about four things, then your odds of getting it right are only 50-50. So you really don't want to load people up and have them trying to have too much information, if you like. There are some grand strategy books that have um, the principles of, of a grand strategy down to 40 or 50 points. That's too many for a single person just to just to re-remember. Re, 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 re so I was trying to simplify it. Now, that's important because that then uh, drove the choice of discipline. I would do my... PhD in because I thought why not why not do I PhD I PhD in this now the two disciplines that are, that, are, that are most influential upon grand strategy are history the most what the, the most important sort of if you like and international re, 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 international relations hereafter called IR but and the two of them bring different things to to the uh, table they they both employ very very different uh, mo- uh, methods if you like. And this was a th- book, after all, thinking about sort of uh, talking about thinking about thinking. Now, historians, as, as Gaddis famously said, take an ecological view of the world. They see an they, they see an historical e- 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 examination includes many aspects that are interdependent. Each is important in its own right, but each contributes to a much larger, complex picture. So, if you like, historians try and make the try, try and make the picture complex and vivid and detailed. IR, conversely, takes the completely opposite approach, it takes a reductionist approach and tries to ascertain the single or two key independent variables upon which the whole complex picture depends. And then IR scholars try to apply this this variable to many other issues and examples. So if you like, historians generalise within the historical situation they're examining to gain greater understanding. IR makes universal generalizations that they then use historical examples to verify and validate. Historians explore unique past events, whereas IR tries to construct theories of valid again across time and space. So very different looks at at, at, at the world and, and as an academic discipline. So I chose IR because I was talking about policymakers. Policymakers live like the rest of us in the future. History is important because that's 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 the only thing that we have to 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 actually understand, if you like, all those those complicated uh, social worlds that we live in. But we live in the future, not the past. So we're projecting into the future. So IR, because it has a few independent variables, can be useful for that for that um, for that sort of projection in sort of into the future. Whereas history you, you tends to be a, a bit overly complicated; variables proliferate. And projection becomes very difficult. Remember, I said about human beings can can handle three things at once, not 45 things. Now, interestingly enough, that particular small number of variables, of course, uh, sort of underpins the the, uh, the the so-called foresight school that that uses old all alternative uh, futures school, and that's within that that strategic planning. So there is a fair bit out there about this, but this about this particular kind of approach. So I suppose that, that that those were the that, that was a big thing making it for policy makers, and then the the decision about making it for IR. You can see, had I had I wanted a different outcome, had it not been for policy makers, then I wouldn't have have a chosen IR. I would have gone down i.e. a different or or used a a different method to to analyze the problem.
1: No, that's really interesting because I've done work because I have a background in history, but I've also done uh, work uh, analyzing through the IR paradigm. So I can actually kind of relate to some of the issues you were talking about uh now we're going to get into more detail but possibly like for example like for any of your students who've never experienced that or never encountered this term before wh- how do you explain like the basic idea behind grand strategy how, like how would you explain it to say uh, a student or even a a policymaker who they don't have a real good clear vision like what this entails what this means like what like what's the difference between grand strategy and regular strategy can you kind of boil it down to the basic idea and
2: of course we're going to go into more detail as we go Yeah, the yeah. I, in a very simple form grand strategy is about building and applying power strategy is just about applying power now that's we sort of need to break that down a, a, a little bit bigger and and uh, in in the book i i, I spend a chapter analyzing a, a, a whole pile of, all of other people's work and also applying a, a certain logic and uh, rationale that uh, builds up one of those lovely sort of definitions of things and we'll just work our way through that through that through that definition and you'll pick up pick up a few ideas so grand strategy is the art now art's important because in science if the same the same inputs give you the same outputs that's how you can have a scientific method, if you like. That's how you can validate a, a, a scientific theory. If the same input gives you a different output, then your hypothesis, your, your theory, the whole thing's wrong, let's say. I simplify there. But in strategy, is strategy is an art because the same input will give you different outputs. You recall Lute works uh, work on the paradoxical logic of, of, of a strategy. Once you've done something, the other side learns and they won't let you do the same thing again, or it, it it won't have the same effect again because you have changed the world. So it's an art, not a science in the, in the sense of being able to reproduce inputs and outputs. So grand is the art of developing and applying diverse forms of power. So I said, you have to build the, build your instruments of national power first before you can apply them. And the, the, the diverse forms of power, there's a million different kinds. I, I quite like Laswell's very simple distinction, which you know, sort of um, colleges around the world use the so-called dime. D, D, D diplomacy, information, military, and economic. And those sort of that sort of breakdown of the national instruments of power is is sort of a reasonably concise one without sort of getting sort of too too uh too too too, too detailed and uh, too abstract. So unlike strategy, which tends to be just a single instrument of power or a single type of instrument of power, for instance, there's a military strategy, an economic strategy, diplomatic strategy. Grand strategy combines all those together and and provides insight and a guidance for them. So across from the diplomatic, information, military and, and economic. So grand strategy both builds and also uses diverse forms of power in an effective and efficient way. We all like to be at least effective, but efficiency, of course, because states never have enough power. You always need more. So you want to use the power you have in the most efficient way because there's usually a whole raft of problems out there. No one ever, no one, no one ever, ever has the luxury of having a single problem. So you want to do the efficient use of power as well. And we use that to try to purposefully change the existing relationship between between two or more intelligent and adaptive entities. So, as said before, strategy is between, if you like, you and you and me, and and both sides are intelligent. And as things change, both sides change as well. So they're adaptive. So it's not like a plan where you have, say, a plan about building a railroad, which while that might be really, 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 really complicated, the world is not ch- the world is not changing, changing around you in the sense that um, the 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 the, uh, the railway system isn't isn't trying to. Either help you, or, or or fight you, or even neutral. It just it it it, it is just a thing. It is it, it it just is. But strategy is an interactive social event, if you like, between two intelligent entities. When I say the existing relationship in the book, I use international orders. I use the word re, re, re relationship, if you like, just to sort of um, simple speak, just to sort of get through international orders, and we can talk about what I mean by 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 international orders later. But just summing that all up together, so grand strategy is the art of developing and applying diverse forms of power in an effective and efficient way to try to purposely change the existing relationship between two or more intelligent and adaptive entities. I use the word way there, and we can talk about that later as well.
1: Now, also in the first chapter of the book, you do talk about some of the debates that go on within grand strategy or what even grand strategy means. Can you kind of explain a little bit of of those debates to our listeners? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the,
2: the, the grand strategy as we think about it, if you like, only goes back to uh, World War I and just after World War One, And a couple of British thinkers, Little Hart and, and, uh, and uh, Boney Fuller, were the two that popularised the term. It certainly goes back to a Corbett before World War One, but 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 uh, Fuller uh, explained the term in, in, in a lot more detail and then Little Hart who writes really well turned Fuller's words into something people could easily understand, if you like. So my strategy very much goes back to that particular World War I, where, the, where they found that the, that strategy was not enough, that that strategy needed to be to be, to be be rethought to include the fact that these were massive wars of the state. They were wars of the societies and industrial wars that encompassed all of those diverse form, forms of, of power. This was this was this this was not some some uh, some uh, kitchen some kitchen cabinet war of say seventeen forty or a seventy fifty. These were wars wars of the people against other peoples. So they were so they were so they were big. Now after World War II, all this got a bit sort of lost uh, um, to 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 a to 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 a certain extent. Um, it's the academic trend, I suppose, is is that is that every idea is. Con, con, is uh, Contested and and fought over, so so the ideas about what grand strategy covered became a bit um, vague. There are some people who, who sticking very much to 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 uh, to uh, World War One decided it was it was only for war. The word strategy, of course, um, comes from the Greek about the art of of, of generals. Therefore, grand, therefore, grand strategy and strategy could only could only be about war. And human beings do a lot more apart from make war. There are there, there are many there, there are many other things that that that, uh, that states that uh, states do. Remember, we're talking about grand strategy here from a policy making point of view, being a framework and a method that grand strategies can apply to the problems of a state or a non-state actor. So apart from war, there's also the, there's also the view that grand strategy is only for big states. In fact, um, a, number of, a, a number of authors ha, ha, have said that only the United States, and, and, and originally the Soviet Union, but now they've gone. Only, only the United States can do grand strategy because only it has uh, is is large enough and has adequate and has adequate resources for this. But if you talk, think about grand strategy, we're talking about building and applying power for a particular reason. Then grand strategy really applies even more so for small states that have limited resources. Small states need to focus their 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 resources on their most important problems, not wasted on, on, on trivial matters. So, as a methodology, as a way of thinking about problems and solving problems, grand strategy is just as appropriate for small states, big states, and non-state actors as well. As I talk about in talk about within with, with within the book, there's another train of thought that gets excited about threats. Grand strategy is only for threats. Opportunities, it seems, do, do not exist. It is built completely around threats. Well, I, I think I think again that's that's a very that's a very narrow uh, look at at, at, at at the world and the problems all of us face. Not everything is a threat, and sometimes there's lots of opportunities. And also to to try and if you like build a country and build a state and take you into in a, a, a new way. Threats tends to be or tends to imply being reactive, so you're being shaped by others or being shaped by events. Whereas grand strategy is all about agency and shaping the future, not being shaped by it, if you like. So, so then takes us to fourth one about about national interests. You know, Wolfers had a famous article back in 1952 or something, or or something like that. Where he talks about national interest, and I and I'm a big fan of Wolfers in the sense that I think the term is fine for rhetoric, but it's not actually a useful term from a strategic or a problem-solving term. For example, I mean, sort of everybody has their own view about what's in the national interest, um, and and all of us will, will argue logically, let's say, but each of us will have a, a different idea. So it's, if so, if the idea is as vague as that and as fluffy as that, it's not a useful concept. For example, you know, back in two thousand and two or two thousand and three, everyone thought, every, everybody thought that invading Iraq was in the national interest. We had to do this right now. If you ask people now they would probably disagree with you and historians will probably say well actually it wasn't in the national interest of anybody so that's what i mean it's sort of national interest as a term it's a good it's good rhetoric but i don't think it's a good term for grand strategy so you see from those examples you know, sort of wars threats national interests big states small states sort of stuff that those various debates are percolating on still and they still if you like make the subject a bit fluffy and make people still uncertain what is included in it, and so when you've got something which is a bit vague and amorphous, and if you like, cloud-like, um, I think I think that the grant grand strategy as a generic concept has gone downhill since sort of the middle of of the last century, if you like, as people have done the academic thing and tried to introduce new ideas or contest ideas rather rather than build from what from what was there before. Has there been like
1: a little bit of a revival of interest, especially now with uh, some of the current events, especially with now great power competition being taken more seriously? Now is that
2: kind of leading to a revival of grand strategy in your view? Oh, I think I think definitely. I mean, to a certain degree, you know. So we had the Cold War, and and the American and it was obviously a, a a bipolar order: the Soviets versus uh, versus the, the United States. And its allies, allies, partners, and friends. So, in the allies, partners, and friends part, and the and the United States, the the, the United States had a grand strategy, and Gaddis speaks about that um, in his book very well. But America, if you like, focused upon the Soviet Union. So everybody else and everything else, sort of thing, either either helped the U.S. with its uh, Cold War, or they hindered U.S. actions, or they were neutral. So, so everything and everybody was seen through that particular type focus on the on the so the Soviet Union I think that sort of impacted people's view because when the Soviet Union went sort of went away everyone said, well there's no more need for grand strategy now because the Soviet Union's gone away And I think as you, as you sort of say um, at the end of the 2000s as as there are issues arising and in particular the big elephant in the room of course is it is China um people started to think about grand strategy, both I wonder what the Chinese grand strategy is and what should our grand strategy be to manage the rise of China? Because we're when I said that we're trying to change our relationship with the with the other entity, we're trying to make our relationship better, if only from our point of view. So we have a particular idea in mind, if you like. So I think grand strategy has, you know, has has received a flip, if you like, from the rise of China. But of course, um, you can't get past the 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 Russians as well. Um, they 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 may be a power on the way out, uh, but they raise a whole pile of, of of interesting questions, and they do bring up that uh, grand strategy uh, nexus nexus sort of sort of once more. Very much Russians being, if you like, a real world threat. There's a real world war going on, but with China, we we want to try and avoid a war here. We want a, We want a good future world. We, we uh, don't want one that is wracked by war. So you can see that grand strategy as a methodology can be can be uh, 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 applicable in, in, in both those senses. Now, you mentioned international orders
1: a few minutes ago. Uh, what is the important relationship between grand strategy and international orders? And this probably gets into the uh, international relations or
2: IR uh, context that you were talking about at the beginning of this interview international orders or orders sort of tends to be and ir word if you like and certainly as i was doing it within the ir discipline and doing a phd that 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 fitted that fitted nicely but it does um it and the word order of course also is a useful word because it's a big word and has a long history and lots of people ha- have have studied it for decades and and the decades but orders uh but but orders is the is the po- the the political relationship between the be the be, be, uh, between states. So it it it's, it's the the formulation of the re relationship. But it also implies something which is settled, not something which is which is uh, volatile. So we have a relationship with another state that tends to be broad, but it is very much a, uh, a, 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 a at the uh, politics at the uh, politics level. And is settled for a certain time those relationships those orders do evolve and change though just as sort of everything changes so grand strategy and orders is not something you can just if you like fire off and forget it's something that needs constant uh constant uh tending the word orders is quite useful as well because we can bring out with that that grand strategies can be if you like uh, your target audience your object get, get, can be a single country, or they can be uh, 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 some a uh, uh, alliance grouping, or even the whole world. So, so, so orders are one of those lovely scalable things that goes from the the individual up to the global.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, the famous phrase by Alexander Went: uh, "Anarchy is what states make of it." Yes, that's <laughs> kind of partially uh, what you're talking about here with
2: French. <laughs> and uh, Went's other famous idea, of course, is ideas all the way down from, if you like, the global level down to the literally individual level. And that's a, that's a good sort of metaphor about, or a, um, a, a good thing about grant strategy as well. But we can talk about that I, I, a little bit more sort of when we sort of talk about IR ideas also.
1: Now, some of the, the three main components uh, or goals of grant strategy that you mentioned are ends, ways, and means. Can you kind of explain what? those each mean and how do they relate to grand
2: strategy yeah Leakey back at, back in in uh, carlisle at the army war college in what was that in in the in in the 80s came up with sort of the famous three-legged stool and he thought strategy was composed of ends ways and means and so if you balance up ends ways and means you'd have a, a strategy that that would work so ends are the objectives. So the relationship you are looking for, the orders in that sort of IR sense, the ways, or rather the means, are your instruments of of, of national power: uh, di- di- diplomacy, information, uh, military, economic. The ways how those means will be used to achieve your ends. So I look at this a little bit differently to 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 Aliki, who who's if you like, strategy equals E plus w plus m so i've got the ends are equal to the ways plus the means in the sense that how you use the means is actually important leaky sort of sort of skated sort of around that strategy in fact itself is all about the ways strategy is as we just said an idea and it's how you will use your means the means in a sort of um a generic sense are the same across all states that they all have diplomats and 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 militaries and information and uh and economics there's just different size different size of means but the but the important thing is 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 ha- is how you use the ways. so if you have extravagant ends let's say and, and uh, big ambitions but small means that doesn't mean you can't achieve your extravagant, extravagant uh, ends it's just that your ways have to be really clever. And really smart, and as and as Friedman said, has to add on to 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 your to your instruments of 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 a power. So strategy is additive; it makes you more powerful than you actually are. Let's say, mm-hmm. and that's that that's that sort of that's that's the sort of beauty of that little easy formula: e e e e equals w plus m. But it also brings out the grand strategy; is all about the ways the way we will use things. So when we talk about adding the adjective grand into a strategy, we're actually talking about adding grand ends and grand means. We're not talking about grand ways. So it's a very selective application of grand. Grand ends in the sense of we're talking about the peace beyond where we are now, the peace we are driving for. That um, the peace after the war was 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 an idea of of a little of a, of a little hearts. You don't fight a war to win, per se. You fight a war to build a relationship in the post-war era, where you want where, uh, what you want the future to be. Means are uh, similarly, we spoke about diverse means and about building the means. So grand strategy is about means and about ends, even though strategy itself is all about ways.
1: Now, you also talked about three broad types of knowledge structures. These are beliefs, beliefs, uh, schem- uh, schemas and uh, analogies. Uh, can you kind of explain what the what these are and how do these uh, relate to grand strategy?
2: Yeah. So um, when I thought about policymaking, I uh, stepped back a little bit and I thought, I'm doing this at the individual level. Individuals think in certain ways. So it's very much thinking about thinking. And each of us Thinks about issues in, in in or thinks differently. We have we have a different knowledge and different expertise, but the way that our our that that our brains are wired, if you like, we think about we we think about issues. We literally think we think differently. So, be 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 uh, be, be, be 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 beliefs are that which we hold to be true and are used to perceive and make sense of the external world. So they're general. In the content. And they form the background against which people view the world, but they're less suitable as a problem-solving device. So that so I I, I rule those out, although we, we all sort of use that word very, very, very glibly, perhaps, beliefs. Now, schemas, in a contrast, are inclusive in being the product of an active reconstruction of our experiences, values, and stereotypes into a general abstract representation. They facilitate. Problem, problem solving by helping our mind organize complex situations in a way that quickly aids comprehension. So we use schemas to structure new situations for imposing a known cast of actors and their relationships onto events, filling in gaps in information with default knowledge while allowing the mind to make additional inferences using pre-existing knowledge and the concepts. If you like, schemas are a framework, a script as it's sometimes called, that we impose upon the world to give the world order but importantly, it's abstract. It's a high level abstract and it's, again, a bit vague. We add things to it. In contrast, AI analogies, while functioning like schemas, are particular and concrete rather than conceptual and non-specific as schemas are. So people look backwards, they choose a historical event and the response is made to address it and then bring this, this understanding forward as a historical AI analogy and impose this onto current problems and emerging issues historical analogies offer pre-processed unique solutions so they're not a problem solving method useful in many situations so you've got to have if you, as you look backwards you you find things about the past that you're now trying to project into the future whether they match up whether the past matches up with the future is hard to say because we because we're not in the future yet so we're just making an assumption that the past the future will, will be just will be will be just like the past and yet, historians know that the future, that the past is in fact unique. There's a million variables out there, and the context is not necessarily the same in the future. Now, logically speaking, because there are so many variables and so many things, you must eventually have a, a future which is just like the past. But we're talking a large, a, a large number of of, of uh, possible of possible futures there. So, the disadvantage of of historical I I, I analogies. Is that they're extremely strong and extremely powerful and we all love them to bits we all like them and we all apply them onto current day problems all the time in american ir there's there there there, there are many books written about uh the application of the munich uh his his historical AI analogy and the appeasement historical AI analogy and 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 it's and its impact in AI american policy making people go back to the past they find things And they troll them or troll history and they bring them forward into the future. And the important thing is, is this, that sounds that, oh, a historian wouldn't do that. Well, actually historians over history have in fact done just that. They're just as guilty as the rest of us because we all have confirmation biases and, and historical analogies tend to feed into our cognitive biases, whereby if you like, we confirm, we know that, that the future will be just like the past. And so we find examples in the past that fit our view of the future, and vice versa. So our biases reinforce the power of historical AI analogies. And people often try and make grand strategies based upon historical AI analogies. As I said, they're very, very powerful, fascinating, very interesting, and they give you a, a particular solution in high degree of detail. You know how it starts, the middle, and it ends. But, the, but we don't know that because we're living in the future. We, we, don't, we don't live in the past. Hence, I focused upon schemas because they're abstract. Not, they're not as helpful as historical I-I-I analogies because they don't necessarily tell you sort of how it ends, if you like, and the middle, and they don't have as much color and detail. But being abstract, they're perhaps I-I-I-I a better thing to use as a policy-making tool, as a framework, when we're thinking about solving a problem.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm always kind of thinking about that when people are always saying like how the crisis or certain issues we're dealing with today, these are like the worst thing we have ever faced. But I kind of think a lot of times the power of that is because we don't know the end result of like where current crises or problems are leading us. Whereas if you look into the past, yeah, you can see it was bad,
2: but, then you, but you know how it ended. Yes, and, and knowing how things end is a bit of a trap, and all of us love it. I mean it's extremely powerful, as I said, um, all of us as human beings are attracted to it.
1: Now you talk about the three
2: main applications of power and how ah, these. Just, just one second I should I should bring up an anecdote here because because I, I was just thinking how that relates to to grand strategy. So what another another factor or another uh, um, event. That influenced me writing the book was I went and listened to a lecture by by Doug Fife, who who was the under the under secretary for defense policy at the Pentagon during the early years of the global war on on terrorism. And I went and listened listened to his his launch of his book War and Decision at the American Enterprise Institute around 2009. I and and his talk made a big impression on me on the use of historical uh, i.e. analogies. And the dangers of them. Now, I must say, before I say this, this is an, 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 an anecdote. This is what my my my, uh, my uh, memory is telling me. So, so my memory influenced me. This is not necessarily written down anywhere or in sort of tablets of stone for academics to then sort of ponder over. But this is what I recall. So, so uh, Doug jumped up and and he said that they were uh, a number of policymakers, including him. He was a very senior one. Were on the the uh, transport aeroplane flying back from Paris um, and. Uh, for a meeting at, 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 at the White House because they were in Paris at some at some NATO meeting. And on the way back, they discussed it. And they thought, this has been done by a, a terrorist group. What do we you know about terrorist groups? Well, we know, we know that during the Cold War, especially during the latter stages, the Soviet Union supported a wide range of, of, uh, of uh, terrorist groups. So, ter- and in particular, the assassination of the Pope. Therefore, Today, But therefore, this is uh, therefore state support terrorist groups. This is an extraordinarily big terrorist attack. Therefore, this cannot have been done by non-state actor by itself. This clearly had the strong and viable support or the strong, deep support of, of all the state. This was not a non-state actor. This was, if you like, a proxy war made by that state, just like the Soviet Union supported terrorists then. So this so this evil state is supporting al qaeda now the next jump was and who is the biggest state sponsor of a terrorism in the world in 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 2001 everybody knew the answer iraq therefore we should attack iraq and you can see there's a logic there it may not be rational but human beings can find things in the past to fit the future if you like now probably there's a, there's a lot of jumps of faith there that you wouldn't necessarily sort of write down (laughs) because people would sort of pick you apart. But that's what I recall him saying. And it made a big impression on me that historical AI analogies are attractive and they have real-world influences. The war in Iraq has a long tail and influences our world right now. So you need to get those grand strategies correct.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
1: sorry back up. no no, you. no no no, that was actually a great story and i could almost say myself as uh I, I there's new scholarship new historical scholarship out there on the cold war about how it was actually very complex how in some ways these groups these terrorist groups they were kind of using the eastern Bloc for their own ends and just like vice versa so they weren't just mere pawns of the soviets or because uh i remember there was one about the stasi trying to make contact with the fighter meinhof gang and to some extent it didn't always go as well as they thought but it you know so there were those connections but to simply say oh this those states were sponsoring them uh it's a little simplistic it was actually far more complex these groups were (laughs) pursuing their own grand strategies if you will uh that didn't always align with the Soviet or the Soviet bloc
0: countries.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, great powers in particular have trouble sort of thinking about non- about non-state actors or even about sort of smaller states because they assume great that that this goes back to our discussion about great powers before. That some people think only the United States can have a grand strategy. And as soon as you start thinking like that, you think only the U.S. can have agency. Every every everybody else can't have agency, and that's really that's really very dangerous from from, from a policy making point of view. Remember, strategy is uh, two, is the interaction between sort of two, uh, even, even intelligent and uh, adaptive entities, and uh, and only and seeing yourself as the only person that has agency. You know sort of discount strategy completely
1: yeah i think uh as time goes on we're kind of moving away from that old uh cold war mentality but of course we're still facing that trouble of analogies uh as you notice it's almost like that's a perennial human yeah. temptation but of course awesome. yeah so we're we're going to be stuck with it in some form or another even if the cold war analogies are kind of receding now you talk about the three main applications of power and i'm noticing a trend that everything's in threes here but that kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning yeah. uh so there's three applications of power denial engagement and reform can you
2: explain uh what those, what those each are yeah so when i started to think about how people think about things uh, and because i was working with things within ir at the present time in ir there's there's a poly heuristic uh thought uh, model is 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 is, uh, is uh, very strong, and that just tries to combine rational choice with the with the theory of uh, cognitive. What it means for us is that humans have, if you like, an architecture about how we think about a problem, but we have to populate the architecture with ideas. And so I decided I should pop. So it was it was both. We had to use, if you like, tell people how to think, or or give people um, a framework about how to think which, as I said before, and, and that's sort of in the book about how to do that using using the latest IR ideas. But how to think is not enough. It has to be sort of what to think about and and populate it with a schema. So I came up with a particular optimised schema for grand, for grand strategy. And I tried to make... And because I'm trying to think abstract here and lift it up and not get down in the weeds, if you like, I tried... I, I, I thought, well, there's three, there's three ways of, of doing things here in a very abstract manner, you can either stop someone else doing something, you can help someone else do something, or you can change that 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 other entity's ideas that they they there they are thinking. So the de- the denial grant strategy is is stopping uh, um, another state or another group of states from achieving their objectives, stopping them doing things. The engagement grant strategy is working with others uh, for the common good, even though watch sort of while you're both working for the same outcome that outcome may or may not be good for the others let's say so you know it's, it's sort of working 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 with others for your agreed outcome and secondly the reform grant strategy was changing people's minds and that then fits sort of that then fits nicely I suppose um because because they're, they're, they're just three and people can hold those in their minds easily and they can and and those words to a certain extent, um, I wouldn't say that they mean sort of a single thing, but they're but they but they're but they're relatively concise. And the advantage of using those, and to sort of go one step forward, I suppose, was that I could then tie those into international relations theories. Remember, I said that right at the start, I was looking I was looking for somewhere for see if like standing standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, once you tie those three into international relations theories, um there are in the IR world, there are thousands of scholars who have been, who have worked away for decades and decades. Um, they've devoted thousands of, of well, tens of thousands of, of, of years into studying IR, what happened and why it happened. IR tends to look backwards. That's the only place that we can look logically. We can't look forward in that sense. And, and they try and pick up those, those, those individual variables. And the three big IR ideas, if you like, the three the three big theories. And there are many theories. Some of them held literally only by individuals, but there are three big theories of which have you know have which have conquered the world, if you like. Realism is all about power. It's all about states. So it fits that uh, the D the D Nile one rather well. Um, the N engagement fits into new liberalism well andrew moravic's idea there is actually to give liberalism which is a um a philosophy rather than and uh rather than a, 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 and a ir theory so andrew had to turn it turn it into an ir theory and his idea was that um within the, with it within a state there are many domestic subgroups and those groups compete and they if you like sort of fight each other um both both literally and virtually etc and 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 the victors take over the state, but, but and then the state has the preferences of the group that has won. So you're looking inside the state at those uh, subgroups. And the third one was was at the individual level about how people think. Now social constructivism is the sort of general school, if you like, of IR that that fits into. Social constructivism though doesn't place a great degree of emphasis upon agency. There's just a small number of scholars, and Seekink uh, and Finimore in particular, um, uh, worked on something called uh, 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 called agentic constructivism, which has things like a norm cascade about how norms arise and how so 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 societies are uh, uh, adopt norms and and how they adopt our uh, 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 identities as well. So the power of ideas. I'll just go back there to to uh, realism and and the. And realism is a very broad school, and I chose one that was that was a Mersheimer specialty, offensive realism. To be honest, I don't like that theory very much, but it has, but it is very sharp, very precise. And in this particular uh, um, action about helping policy think about problems in a sort of a um, a fairly uh, sort of not not, not sort of hard-nosed manner, but a precise uh, way that doesn't overlap across all those other theories. Because I'm looking for three very distinct ways about viewing the world, and if you like the D the D the D Nile one, um, uh, uh, that's at the state level. The engagement is at the sub the uh, substate, state, as as we would say, at the second at the uh, second image, as as Walt said. And the third one at the individual level at the at the first image, if you like the state ones the, at the international system level is is the third image. So it's 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 both looking about ways, if you like. But it also brings in the fact that countries are complicated beasts and there are many ways of looking at them, you know, as sort of as a billiard ball, if you like, as a series of groups within it and even down to the individuals, i.e. you and me.
1: Yeah, and it's almost kind of interesting because I've been paying attention to this debate in uh, in IR International Relations and it's almost like each of the schools have their own strengths and uh, weaknesses and it's almost like how how can you actually fit like all three the strengths of all three together almost cuz yeah cuz you know on some level they states do cooperate on some level they do compete and in some ways it is also determined by ideas and uh norms because you know if you look historically you know obviously the international order of say the ancient near east is a little bit different than what you know we do today in the 21st century and that's because of you know those norms and belief systems
2: yeah yeah the uh the uh, are certainly uh, are certainly very different as i said though those those ir theories are not um i'm not using those as an explanatory device if you like uh which is how they're normally used to look back at some particular uh, historical event and say well this well this this approves the power of um liberalism of new li- Liberal theory here. I'm uh, using these as a, as a framework of a, a, a bunch of hooks, if you like. So policymakers can can project those variables into the future and apply them to a problem and see if they fit, because they because they make because all three won't fit at the same at the uh, same time. And what I use as, if you like, a winnowing device, is that each each of those three has has particular orders or relationships which are are, are associated with them. And and the one that you know the the, the one that the, the classic one that we all think about with with the realism is balance of balance of, of of power for example, so there's three or four orders associated with each of those, and your way of of sort of working out where you're going to a certain extent is first up having a look and seeing what order what relationship that you want in the future, and then of course is 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 is, is whether is is whether the way which is associated with that relationship, whether that can be achieved with that with that with that particular way. the the oddity or the difference here, I suppose, is that it is that in my way of thinking about grand strategy, is that the way that you apply the means has it has has or it has a, a direct relationship to the to the order you can achieve. So, for instance, as an extreme example, you want you can't uh, change The idea is within a country and so make it a democratic state by dropping sort of 20 or 30 thermonuclear weapons and killing everybody. So the the way that your power is used is important for the outcome that you seek. There is a a direct relationship between ways and ends. So you can't just use your military in the same way and expect to get different ends like sort of ends which are more are uh, uh, appropriate to an engagement grant strategy or a reform grant strategy in the book there I talk about uh the the uh, the war in uh, 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 in uh, Iraq and and the uh, and the military force was used in a balance of power way if you like to achieve a balance of power outcome but what was actually sought? was a reform grand strategy to change the ideas of the Iraqi people so that they would come on they so that they would come on boards with with the idea of, of of being a democratic state in the future so the outcome sought and the way the means were were, were, uh, were used uh, was intention and it was was incoherent so it's important that that sort of those sort of ways and ends are, are linked up together and I say that's sort of one thing about the book which is perhaps more and more and more a here is that you do need to that IR gives you ways to think about the ends because how source because the, vic, the victory sort is often very difficult to define. But IR thinkers have been thinking about this for a long, for a, a long time and they have thought about different kinds of orders and different kinds of relationships. So IR gives you a language and a way to think about the relationship you want in the future. So IR is very useful for that particular purpose. Now, how are effective grand strategies
0: usually
1: constructed? Because uh, we kind of talked, because you just mentioned about Iraq, where they were using a balance of power approach to essentially a reform end. But how are they usual? How are usually effective grand strategies constructed?
2: I think you have to. Um, and I, I drew upon Alexander George. It was sort of my little hero there, if you like, at the start of the book about. And, and Alexander George. In the 50s and the 60s and the 70s studied uh mainly in, in, in the white house studied ways about how policy think and how and how they how they devise their policies and he decided that um that they should diagnose the problems using a particular kind of framework and so i use a similar framework to that if you like that it gives so rather than if you like um giving a policymaker a solution and advocating a particular outcome you give you give the policymaker a framework they can apply to the, to their own particular problem, because all policymakers understand their problems differently. They'll have different sources of of information. They look at the world differently. Um, they'll be different to say you giving them a a, a, um, a pre processed unique solution. That they, they will sort of take things and and and, uh, and give it their own spin. So it's the old adage about you know sort of. If you give a person a fish, they can have a single meal. If you teach them how to fish, then they can sort of eat forever, sort of stuff. Um, so there's that. So there's that sort of policy. So I think sort of diagnose um, the problem with with a with with a, with a, a proper framework. That that if you like gives you an understanding of the issues and points you towards the kind of ends you're looking for, the kind of objectives, and that will give you the ways. You've got to make sure that in fact you know those ways are achievable. If you want to change people's minds, then you need to have access to those people as individuals. If you, if you, if you're like Nazi Germany or something like that, in say 1940, you really didn't have, and you'll say, uh, say um, the the British in the British Isles, you really didn't have a way of changing people's minds in Nazi Germany. You just really didn't have that that sort of that sort of access uh, access to them. And as I said, the Brits initially tried an engagement, Grand Strategy, working with Hitler to. Um, to aP a, 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 a settler and that didn't work either so the brits were left with a balance of power strategy if you like by default by both what didn't work and what couldn't work so diagnosing the problem developing the framework as you spoke about before grand strategies are ideas all the way down but but you having the world's best grand strategy actually doesn't mean doesn't doesn't mean very much you then have to convince um the the people around you and the and the governments and the bureaucracies that this is a viable and a sensible way and that goes into group things and a whole pile of 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 bureaucratic politics and ways of foreign policy analysis there but beyond that just as importantly because grand strategy is whole of society you have to convince the people as well or at least enough people and even if, you, even if they're not sold in your grand strategy, they have to be passively accepting of it so they don't actively fight, are, you, are you against it? So at least they are, they are neutral. But if, if a grand strategy is about building power, which is, you know, workforce and material and money uh, and will and, and stuff like that, you need the people on side. So your grand strategy has to be sold. So if you're constructing a grand strategy, an important part is that, if you like, that end bit where you have a strategic narrative and you convince people, that this is the best way to go because in a, in our societies and even in places like China or, or Russia the people have to sign up to this if they're actively are, are you against it it's very difficult to make it to make it happen now what are some of important considerations that need to be accounted for when
1: constructing an effective uh, grant strategy you kind of touched on a little bit in the in your previous
2: answer but can you expand on that a little bit I suppose we've got um, we, we've spoken about grand strategies about applying power, and strategists always love, and we all, and as individuals, we always like about applying power. The building the power tends to be left out. I spoke to a number of people who have written books on, on a grand strategy, and I said, uh, "How come you sort of only mention building power just in passing? There's very little. There's very, there's, there's very little on it." Whether it's an article or a book, oh, they always say, oh, well, actually, I I I know it's really important, but um, I ran out of space and the word count was sort of getting up, so I couldn't talk about building power. Oh, and uh, building power just bores people, so it would send send everybody to 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 to, to asleep. So I think it's important that even though building power is, you know, might be seen as a boring subject, that we actually take on board that we need to build the power before we can apply the power. It sounds really obvious, but policymakers and people generally they like to do things. I like to get to the pointy end of the spear first rather than thinking that they have to build the spear first so i think that that building power a lot more a lot of thought has to go into it and and a lot more thought as well secondly i'd also say when constructing a grand strategy to bear in mind that um it's a grand strategy acting through time so it will have um, a beginning a middle and an end and you need to have be thinking about well, when we reach the end we reach the objective that i'm looking for what happens then how does it change and evolve then because we're sort of building for the future all the time we're not building for what was sort of past if you like and if you decide on an objective today three years time you might want to go somewhere else so i think you need to think about a grand strategy as, as sort of going through time i particularly like the chinese strategic th- thought that sort of emphasizes strategies act, 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 acting through time and they talk about that that uh, that uh, river of time and you sort of nudge the river, if you like, and sort of take it various sort of places. But it, it sort of makes strategy one of of anticipation, if you like, rather than being we sort of think with the sort of Western model, of strategy as being a frozen thing. You know, if the, our our current context is frozen, and we apply the strategy, and that takes us somewhere planned. Um, so I think we, if, when you're when you're building a grand strategy, that you do need to take time, in, time into account. As, as, as a crucial for its operation. It's obviously important for building, for, for building power as well. Sometimes building some forms of power takes a long time, sometimes can be done fairly sort of quickly. When the grand strategy starts, if you like, you need to have made, made sure that you've built your power well back here so that when you want to apply your power, you have your power. Again, an example of, 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 uh, of uh, thinking in time. Now, what are some problems with grant strategy that need to be
1: addressed in your view?
2: I think um, I think right back at the start, we spoke about defining grant strategy. I think it would be handy if we could all agree at least partially on sort of some idea about grant strategy. This is a great book. And a lot of people put a whole pile of work into it. Boom, boom, boom. It has lots of books, a handbook of grant strategy. Okay, hundreds of pages. 44 chapters. wonderful. Some, some some of the chapters are good, some you know we could argue over. but the handbook of grand strategy has no def- no definition of grand strategy. It decides oh we can't we can't create one. It's too hard a problem, really really? Um, which means that there's 44 chapters about grand strategies, none of which you can you can compare and contrast with 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 the others. So you've got forty-four individuals. Well, you know, it just doesn't—it just doesn't work for me. I, I think you actually need to have some form of of, of an agreed definition to, that we that we work towards, so that we can have a common basis for change, if you like. We have a common basis, a a upon a upon, upon which to build. So at the present time, I'm all in favour of agreeing a definition of grand strategy. And some of these really aren't there. They're completely out out of out of of, of left field in that sense. Of, of little heart and fuller and that we spoke about before because um, i think to devise a, uh, like my chapter in the book there about the idea of grand strategy you do need to fit grand strategy into strategy and into the world around you just grand strategy as i said is a is a problem solving is a problem solving method so there is that sort of that that sort of thing which gets us down to the next one i suppose is if you had a definition um it's not just we would we would sort of all agree about things um, but we, but we could then look backwards, if you like, and perhaps uh, apply it back in history, and we could all agree about sort of what worked and didn't work, if you like, sort of to a to sort of sort of to a certain degree. Now, grand strategy, as I say in the book, um, is not good for all for all problems. Hal H- H- Brands has a famous book, What Good Is Grand Strategy, and it's a, it's a, it's a very good book, and uh, I I recommend, I would recommend it. But Hal thinks that uh, that there are only grand strategies. I think that may be a problem coming from um, from from living in the in the superpower world, in that to a certain degree, you've got limitless resources. So there's a tendency to think it's sort of every problem problem solving technique involves grand strategy. But as I say in the book there, there's a number of other ways that you can actually address a problem. You may not solve it, but you can address it. And, and for and, and for smaller states, these certainly 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 offer some advantages. You know, those two big ways there, is as far as, say, grant strategy is focused upon the ends. The others are focused upon the means. And they're purely, if you like, managing the problem rather than solving it. And uh, risk management is a classic example. And uh, op- 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 opportunism as well. Opportunism is, is exploiting opportunities as they arise, which means you've got to be ready and right to go, which means that your means has to be right there. So you look, so for a country, you would need to have fully broad means, maybe not very deep but broad so you can quickly adapt and jump in and exploit some opportunity. Risk management is a different concept in time. Risk management tries to reduce the losses you will suffer if some feared event occurs. And so you can optimise your means against that particular event, if you like. But you're not solving the problem. And the classic example are criminals, criminal gangs, if you like. So you can have a grand strategy against, um, against particular drug car 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 because they are thinking intelligent entities and 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 uh, they are an object if you like so you can optimize your grand strategy against them but not against crime because if you like whether you like or not sort of there will always be crime so with crime your objective is risk management is to keep it at an acceptable level and not let it get out of control so i think some of the some of the the problems about grand strategy is that if you like that it's not good for all particular problems There are problems it's suited for and ones it's definitely not. So I feel like policymakers have to have a a further winnowing out to choose something which is appropriate for the type of problem they are facing.
1: Yeah, that's uh, very important, especially uh, nowadays. Now, uh, what role does grand strategy seem to play in your view and kind of like the current issues of? today or october 2023 we have uh you know uh tensions with china that you mentioned earlier there's of course the war in ukraine and now now we just have the war in uh, gaza that's still playing out just as we speak uh in in a way how does grand strategy uh seem to fit into those uh, events in, in
2: your view yeah i don't the world uh, it's sort of getting a bit of a nasty place, isn't it? I, th- I think if, if we look back in our, it, it's sort of in our lives. The world was in the best place around, sort of two, 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 a thousand, if you like. The uh, the uh, turn of the century was was the best of all possible times, as best of all possible worlds. Anyway, so if you look at China, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I've got probably a, a bit of a, a different view of China. There are particular people who see that China's a grand strategy wanted to take over the world. Um, I think it's. I, I think I don't think so. I think uh, the Chinese way of thinking uh, merges Confucianism, if you like, and realism, and sees the world as a hierarchical place. They see themselves at the top of the world, the top of the world in an I I I I identity sense, because they want to see themselves as at the top of the pyramid, and they want us to see them at the top of the pyramid as well. And I I identities require everyone to be in agreement, both us and them, they see themselves as being very large. And the famous quote from Zhang Wei or something the Chinese foreign minister you know, was, you you are all small countries and that's just a fact. Um, and so I think China at the moment is trying to convince the rest of us so that we think of China and the identity of China is at the top of the heap, if you like, but that, uh, that uh, they are a hegemonic power in an, an ideational sense. So, so that when we think of issues, when we think of new ideas, we think about new policies for our nations, we put China's interests first without even thinking. We ca- we cannot imagine a world where we wouldn't, where China's ideas, China's needs would not influence our thinking. So it's very much cap- capturing our, our, our imagination, if you like. And they do that by as the machiavellian quote has it, by, by actually the best way to be respected is to be loved and feared, and loved is the economic side of it, and people love them for their economic wealth and and, the, and their financial um, gains, etc. cetera. They're definitely loved by a whole pile of people, including Australia uh, and the United States, I say, too. Um, but they're also feared because China has gone to a great degree of trouble with its grey zone tactics in, in East Asia and, uh, and on the Indian-Chinese border to irritate people for the last decade or so it's not just building up a large military and us wondering i wonder what what sort of all those nuclear bombs are for but every day of the week china is irritating people in the south china sea and the east china sea and on the himalayan border there's a real ruckus ruckus going on with the philippines right now as we talk and that and that has some potential to turn quite nasty in the next the next couple of weeks as well as that of course every day every government is receiving a port a, a report from their cyber experts saying the Chinese are try- have broken into this, they're trying to do this, they're trying to do, this. they're trying, to, do this. They're trying to, do, to, 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 to uh, steal our secrets. So people fear China, and they both love China. So we certainly respect it. And I think they think that's the way they should apply power. In that combination, we think it's in, it's, it's incoherent. Of course, it's two things acting against each other. Remember were those ways before you know we're trying to it doesn't really work but it certainly does have our attention you have to say that we're all that we're all impressed by uh, China. So I think China is that reform grand strategy kind of sort of kind of place there. but remember I said about about they wants to love them as well I think that's another fascinating part about what China' is doing at the present time that goes back to the building of the of building of, of, of a Chinese power and a building grand strategy. So China has adopted a dual circulation policy. So they want to build two e-economies, if you like, one that looks inside and is domestic, and one which is outward facing and interacts with the world. Because China understands it's part of the globe. It's only 1.5, 1.4 billion people, and there's, and there's another, seven, another six billion out there. So it needs to interact with the rest of us as well. It can't cut itself off, and, and to be a, hermit king, uh, be a hermit kingdom like North Korea is a good example. So that 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 dual circ, that dual circulation means that there's a lot of effort going into uh, to in to industrial policy planning, and they've got the world's biggest industrial policy plan, if you like, that is part of their grand strategy called the innovation driven development strategy, or IDS, or IDS for short. Sure. And they've rolled in a whole pile of things in there: the the dual civil military fusion and and AI and digital t- sort of, sort, of, sort of technology and a whole pile of things. And the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, is choosing winners and investing. And that industrial policy, that kind of approach is being seen by people outside China. And everyone's going, oh, I wonder whether we should be doing that as well. As you would go, if you go through the book there, you'll see that that, that managerial state and the market state. And while we might have been market states, we're all moving now much more in the last decade towards being more sort of managerial states, just like sort of China is, let's say. So I think China is a really interesting example of that of that innovation-driven managerial policy, and we perhaps sort of talk about that later. But the way that the Chinese are doing it is a is a real-world example of a, of a of a of a managerial state. And as I said, um, uh, trying to change our imagination, capture our imagination with the identity play—that's an, an interesting way about doing it as well. I have to say about the identity play and why I bought it in the Philippines there was. The trouble about that, and you remember we spoke about the river of time there and China, all that sort of good stuff like that, is as they ratchet up the fear with us, they create a new normal. And so China needs to needs to keep ratcheting up the fear. So uh in the Philippines at the moment, sort of three or four months ago around the second Thomas Shoal, et cetera, they started off with with uh Alicia mer, mer, fishing vo- boats, They went to Coast Guard cutters, and now they're talking about naval ships. So and uh, on the weekend, they started ramming some some Philippine government vessels as well. So they're gradually getting work more and more, if you like. It's still non-violent, kind of. There's no one dying. But to keep that fear up with the stuff, they need to keep ratcheting stuff up. So their grand strategy has some, inc- has some incoherences, and they really need to be thinking about about, about changing grand strategies and getting off it now. Of course, this is leading us into a bad place. Where, where escalation into conflict is certainly becoming more and more possible. That's all the good news about China. Okay, um, the the Ukraine almost looks like a you know to a certain degree a straight balance of power strategy. The Russians decided they would invade the uh, Ukraine. They'd like to take over the entire country. Their objective is to annex the whole the whole place. It's almost a classical realist if sort of approach, if you like, and you can see that playing out in, in the Ukraine has uh, has uh, got now a lot of partners and friends. Um, the Russians tried to do the same thing and build up their national power. so it's it's, it's now a, a game of thrones between national power, if you like, about whose power eventually ends. But you can see how military power or the military strategy is being played out or how their grand strategy is sort of working. sort of how this how this is working on paper, Russia should have won on the first day. But the Ukrainians had a better strategy, had a better way of using their national power, and they survived. And now, and now we're seeing it play out downstream about whose way of using the national power will be the best, if you like. And the building of power from both sides will be central to that. Obviously, Russia is now drawing upon its allies in North Korea and and the I- 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 Iranians, pretty poor allies, I would have thought. But anyway, and the Ukraine is drawing upon. The West broadly understood which is you know dozens of very wealthy countries that have a, that, that have a lot of stuff there's pros and cons here of course but it will be it will be interesting to see whose strategy sort of whose way ends. I finish off with uh, Gaza Gaza good example spoke about that that risk management stuff before so the Israelis used to have the, uh, have this policy called mowing the called mowing the lawn also called mowing the grass. So they've been they've been they've been doing that now for about 15 years. So when the Israeli Defense Force, uh, or they they left Gaza and it turned into a separate stateless, not a state but a stateless, if you like, um, they found that the people in Gaza were not overly happy. It's been called the world's largest prison camp for a reason, and being not very happy, they kept having these little conflicts all the time. So to keep to keep the damage from each conflict down to an acceptable level, acceptable from an Israeli point of view. They did the mowing the lawn strategy, where they would, if you like, shoot down the rockets using Iron Dome, so that the so that so that Hamas could not impact uh, Israel very much at all. Just a few small rockets, and they had bombshells, and they they caused very very limited damage. And then they would go and drop a bomb, uh, uh, go and drop a bunch of bombs on Gaza, which would mean that their uh, national power, if you like, their stateless power was reduced back to some more acceptable level as far as the Israelis are, 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 are concerned. So the Israelis were, were, were managing the risk. The difficulty about risk management is it never actually solves the problem. So the so Hamas has been clearly, uh, been, been gradually ramping up. And we, and we now have this extraordinary situation. We, 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 we are in now. At this point, bear in mind that Hamas's attack was so unexpected and so, and one must say dreadful, you know, for, it, it's, it's completely against the laws of war. Absolutely, um, it had enormous shock value, and Israel is now fearful. There is no doubt about it, and they are worried about Hezbollah sort of in, in, up in, in the north, and of course there's the West Bank as well. There's there's, there's three million Palestinians there, and and the West Bank's been very um, volatile this year as well. There's been oh, there's been I think about 250 people killed there this year um, of. Uh, so, there's, so there's a person that dies there every year as well, and there's lots going on now there at the moment. So Israel is, is rightfully fearful. They've suffered an enormous shock. Now, an enormous shock can be, you know, used for used for good or bad. The problem that worries me about the Israelis per se is that their strategy after they've taken out Hamas will be just the same as was before, just mowing the lawn, in which case expect another... War, perhaps a little, it'll be somewhat less less exciting than there there than this one, but expect another one in sort of three or four years' time. Because the risk management approach, that's what it entails and what it means. I'd also say if we step up from the risk management, it's a good another example of so the grand strategy that from what I can understand, and bear in mind I'm sitting here say a long way away, no idea about what's actually happening, but from what um, Israeli prime, prime 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 ministers have been saying is that the Israelis have been playing off the leadership of uh, of the Palestinians in the West Bank and the leadership over in, in the Gaza, so Fatah and Hamas have been being played off against each other to keep them uh, dis, dis, you 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 disunited and and manageable. So again, that's a bit of a risk management, but you can view it from a from a from an engagement grand strategy, maybe not doing good. But that's the common. But 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 that's the outcome you want anyway. So now, Israel and Gaza have suffered an enormous shock. There's been this extraordinary start to the war, and the Gazans are pretty shocked right now, I reckon. Um, so Israel may go back to what, to what it did before, but this is an opportunity. If the Israelis, I think the ball is probably in their court. Not necessarily the not necessarily Hamas, because I think they've sort of left the field, if you like, to a certain extent. But Israel could do some extraordinary. Um, reform grand strategy now and undercut Hamas and the Palestinian issue completely, if you like, or the current Palestinian issue completely. You'll recall the, male, the Malayan emergency that I looked at there, that the British started off with an engagement grand strategy first. They couldn't find anybody to engage with. So it, was, so they, it just didn't work. So they gave that away very quickly and they went to a, to, 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 uh, a, a denial grand strategy which is, if you like, is where the Israelis are now, that that using military power and maximizing military power and killing everybody. But the Brits then found that they couldn't actually solve the problem by simply using that using that that denial grand strategy. So they moved head to a reform grand strategy where they introduced the shock, if you like, was that they wanted to change the ideas of the local populace and the Malay and the Malays and the Chinese, in particular, the uh, Chinese. They wanted to, to draw them away from, if you like, wanting to fight the Brits to wanting to work with the Brits. And the way of doing it, of course, was to offer them independence. And they and it was a hearts and minds campaign, and they won the hearts and the minds, if you like. So if you want that sort of ideational outcome, then maybe the shock that, that the Israelis have now gives them an opportunity for a far-sighted statesman to do something extraordinary. As President Biden has said, he's still in favor of the, of the two-state solution. I have no idea how the two-state solution would in fact work because to, to, to me, looking looking at it from, from here, just doesn't seem viable. But nonetheless, it's some, if you like, some um, out of the box idea, some new idea to exploit the shock that 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 ha- ha- has ha- has happened, undercut Hamas and the nine other terrorist groups that are living in, in, in Gaza and rewrite the script completely. And that's the advantage of reform grant strategy. There is an opportunity there to, in fact, change things forever. Whereas with a denial grant strategy, you're almost putting off the day, if you like. But a reform grant strategy does offer you a way of, of changing the future quite dramatically.
1: This has been a very fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Maybe touch on anything we
2: didn't get to in the interview? I particularly like the idea of, of, of bringing in what I'm, what, what I'm working on now. So, uh, so I, I, um, I have a talk that I have to give at the University of New South Wales at the end of next month, and I've been trying to think what could I what could I possibly talk about, and it's a talk about robots and artificial in in, in, in intelligence, and, it, it, and I've, I've been doing some work in emerging tech tech technologies for a while, which seems quite separate to grand strategies. However, we are talking about the building of the building of, of the power here, so I think I think it's time to bring in the technology. What kind of technology? Well, there's a a type of technology, as you know, called uh, general purpose tech tech, technology, which isn't just specific. It uh, infuses the whole of a society. And you can't understand how you... uh, And and after it's infused everywhere, you can't understand how you survive without it. Electricity is the classic example. Our society is built on electricity. I suppose at one stage it was steam, but electricity has infused everything, everything we do, talking right now, but we just cannot imagine life without it. So there are some technologies, and of course historians have gone through and they have a checklist that you can follow down to see whether a technology is a, a general-purpose tech 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 technology like that. Some have societal war, war, wide impacts, and clearly some will 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 impact um, the the making of, of of a grand strategy very dramatically. So I'm not talking about some wonder weapon like the atomic bomb, although we could argue that one, I suppose, or some wonder weapon like, say, a hypersonic missile. I'm talking about something that spreads across the whole of society, and at the present time, that's happening with artificial in, in-, in-, in- intelligence. That's giving machines minds, if you like, not minds like ours, and the whole, the whole, the whole their whole cognitive structure is is completely, is completely different, and I understand all that sort of good stuff. But nonetheless. It's changing our society and it's a different ballgame to, to what it was, say, 50 years ago, or sort of sort of uh, during, during during the during the days of the Cold War Grand Strategy. So I think there's a there's there may be an opening, there may be a need, I'll have to work this out, for a high-level historic grand strategy for technological innovation and emerging and disruptive uh, 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 adoption of that technology. So in this future, I think this technology is likely to constitute a distinct element of deterrence and defense rather than just as an and an, an, an enabler as it is now. Because you say that 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 AI enables my phone, if you like, to work in a particular way. And once you bring in that innovation, that takes us back to where I spoke about China and its innovation driven D D D D de, D de, de development strategy, innovation almost turns into a thing. If you like some sort of sort of tangible item that is important within strategy and the building of power, innovation in itself as a means of of uh, of uh, building power. So I'm trying to bring in that the technology, a uh, general purpose tech technology form, but innovation as a thing, if you like, in that particular building of power and in the application of power, because we're expecting innovation. And us innovating better than other people will deter other people. Will, we'll, if you like, be a part of of, of a, a denial grand strategy. The people will, will see us innovating, so that will stop them doing things. So just us building power in in that particular way, we'll have um, we'll have a, 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 and 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 uh, and and application, a direct application in that particular manner of deterring people. So that particular sort of. Uh, ball of wax there which i haven't really quite worked out and there's a whole pile of yes buts maybe perhaps here and the whole pile of reasons why it's a good idea a whole pile of reasons why it's about it here that's what i'm working on now are
1: you planning on uh writing a book on on this in the future or have you written a book oh are, are you planning on writing a book on on this research no. topic?
2: <laughs> this is a rhetorical question have you written a book writing a book's a lot of I, 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 a lot of work i'm not sure I, I i have to convince myself yet now do doing it during a phd was sort of one thing and that was fine um <laughs> and because there's, there's a lot of work in in uh, in the writing a book i have yet to convince myself of the idea i would like though to go back and, and update my book and have a sing- and have a better a sing- a second edition and i would build bring up the building part of it much more um, in my phd my supervisor and everyone else said, oh, building's boring; therefore, we should sort of cut all that out." But here we are talking about innovation and technology and building power now being a, a, a component of applying power, if you like. So perhaps I shouldn't have cut some sort of stuff out there. So I'd like to sort of go back and have a revised edition and uh, and bring this in. But there are there there are a lot of a lot of interesting things out there. books books are just a lot of work, and I suppose I should I should make a plug for a book. Uh, that I'm uh, co-authoring that's coming out in February. Um, uh, Ash Rossiter and myself uh, have a, uh, uh, having published a book called uh, "Warfare in the Ro- Robotics Age," and that's available online and, and 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 will be from from Amazon. Oh well, maybe when that comes out, we can have you back on the podcast. For sure, but sure. That is that as as it says is warfare in the in the robotic age. So it's fairly narrowly focused. And while there's 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 sort of IR in there, there's lots of good defense and military stuff in there, and about AI in itself and about the the technologies of that. As I said, the um these are thinking machines, and IBM called them that about 20 about sort of 2010. So when you think of my book is about the cognition of policymakers, we're now talking about machines that have a form of cognition as well. So maybe thinking about cognition in a broader sense. Actually, might might sort of might sort of give us a few a few useful hooks as well.
1: Well, this has been a very fascinating uh, discussion, uh, Peter Layton. Uh,
2: thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you much, Stephen. That was uh, was uh, lots of fun, and I hope that you get something out of that. All the best.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sacavage. Until next time.